Witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting, Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's our host, Calvin. Tonight's a very, very um, awesome opportunity for me. Um, as you know, with COVID and everything's going on, there's been a lot of people who's been asking questions. They've been asking questions like, hey, what's going on with the education system? They've been asking questions such as, what is going on with this thing called, you know, um, learning loss? Then you hear people say, learning loss? What's that? You know, and they're like, no, there's no such as learning loss. It's learning gain. And then, you know, I couldn't even call it. I said, you know what? The best I can describe it, there is a whole lot of political energy when it comes to the education today. And I don't know if it's real or made up, but I'm um, often said, you know, when I was in school, things were a little different. Well, I don't know if they're different. I don't know if they're the same. What they I do know is we have an expert here tonight. We have Miss Eno Richardson education consultant here to break it down for us tonight. And let me just kind of read a brief bio just so you guys can know her background and what she's going to be talking about. N.O. Richardson is a former assistant principal, teacher, and the current founder of N.O. Richardson Consulting. She has been an educator for over 11 years, and 10 of those included school-based experience. She is a fervent about reading, and the ability for books to transform the minds and the lives of children. She believes that reading is, and I quote, the great equalizer. She earned her bachelor's from Vanderbilt University and obtained her master's of education from Vanderbilt Peabody College of Education. Thank you guys tonight. Thank you, N.O., for being here. I'm excited for you to be here tonight. Hello and welcome. Hey, Calvin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, I, I love bios. I love intros, but I'm also curious about you. Is there anything, you know, that your bio, you know, didn't tell us, you know, for, for example, what's your origin story? You know, how did you get into education? Were you always education excited? But tell us about you. Yeah. And hey, everybody. So glad to um, be here with you. Um, so I actually went into school. I'm sure many people have some kind of, you know, experience going into school for one thing and changing along the way. But I went to Vandy as an undergrad thinking, you know, with pre-med on my mind. I was like, oh, a doctor, that's a great job. You know, I have immigrant African parents, you know, and so just like one of those checklist um, items as a good job for a parent, a kid. And so I went through that, but just throughout my journey, I shadowed doctors and realized that that really wasn't the type of interaction I was looking for. I shadowed a pediatrician. I was like, mm, I'm looking for more, but I didn't know exactly what it was. Um, so I ended up deciding that I didn't want to go into medicine. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I dropped pre-med and I had uh, minored in child development, but a, a major in child, double major in child development, medicine, health society, minor in Spanish. But anyway, along the way, I ended up doing an alternative teaching program called the Nashville Teaching Fellow. Um, I thought that that would be something, um, you know, that'd be temporary until I really figured out what I wanted to do. But I 
fell in love with education through that program. I learned a lot about the disparities in education through that program. And I just became hooked and teaching particularly in um, areas that serve black and brown kids or children from low socioeconomic backgrounds, um, which mimicked my upbringing. So I really fell in love with that. And I've been doing all of my education in Nashville. So that's why I've been teaching in the public schools, charter schools here in Nashville. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I really enjoy preparing for this session. You know, as I get prepared for a session, I do research. And as a parent, you know, I've often heard there's all kinds of nuance to schools and education and teachers. But all I could really realize is that what I've been going through over the last three years, Mm -hmm. my son started kindergarten, public school Mm -hmm. during COVID. And it was crazy, right? And it's like, there's no face-to-face, there's no getting no teacher, there's no in the building. But as I began to prep for this, I began to have an OMG moment. I was like, wow, all of this is going on? So tell us, what do you consider the top, you know, um, I guess, hot topics in education today? And, you know, if you don't mind, give us the context of, you know, because I think it's important to let everybody know that you're an education consultant and why these, you know, top five, you know, or top you know, challenges in education, the hot tops in education are important to you. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And kudos to you for getting your son through kindergarten, mm-hmm. through virtual learning, the pandemic. Um, I had the privilege and the experience of, you know, transitioning my school as an assistant principal through virtual learning, through the pandemic. And so it it was a lot for everyone involved, teachers, parents, students, you know, and so kudos to you. And I can only imagine your kindergartner, your first experience with school and having to do it virtually. Um, so the the hot topics, the big issues in education have been there. They're really many of the same ones that have been there for years. But I will say the pandemic, COVID really exasperated some of these issues. Um, And so I would say, you know, number one, of course, if you all are paying attention to headlines, news, even maybe some of your schools or your community schools have been impacted by, you know, this this, um, kind of gap in teachers, retention, um, teachers leaving the job, some teachers, you know, didn't come back after COVID. So there's just a huge gap in just having educators in schools, um, particularly in public schools. So that's a big one. Of course, my passion is around um, urban education. And so, you know, the gaps between how students from Black and Brown communities, particularly underserved communities and those schools perform compared to their more affluent peers, there's definitely a huge gap there. Um, So I would say those are two of kind of like the big ones. And of course, teacher and student mental health, um, that's really, that's a newer one, or at least, you know, getting more attention um, in light of COVID and pandemic. Thanks, thanks, thanks for sharing that. Let's dig into that first one you mentioned. Um, Because this one actually, I don't know if it surprises me, but it really makes me think, what do you feel is leading to, what are some factors leading to the nationwide teacher shortage? Yeah, I mean, there are several factors, but research and studies um, lead, kind of show to, lead to about three trends. 
The first one is just teacher um, leadership um, relationships, particularly with their principals. Um, there are studies that show that um, the new teacher project did a study um, and that really showed that most teachers who leave the profession say that they would have or left the school say that they would have stayed if their principal just ask them to, you know, so that kind of leadership, um, communication, account, um, accountability, that kind of, that's one bucket. There's also another bucket where it deals with policies and teachers feel like they've lost autonomy. Now that I will say have been, has definitely um, been exasperated by the pandemic. And on top of that, about 20 years ago with um, the No Child Left Behind initiative, schools became under a lot of pressure to produce data, to make sure kids are moving. And so things became a little bit more streamlined. So there's more uniform curriculum. So teachers kind of started to feel like they weren't having as much autonomy and creativity. Um, so that, that's um, been another one that um, has definitely um, led to this kind of teacher retention, um, teacher, um, the lack of teacher retention. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting for me because, you know, if I heard the headlines over the years, it's always been, you know, it's hard for teachers or things are just, you know, not fair. You know, it seems like maybe it could be a good thing. Maybe it could be helping the system correct itself. I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Do you think it's going to balance out or, or what are your thoughts? As, um, as far as teachers leaving? Yeah, um, like that. I guess the gap is the overall problem. Yeah, the gap. I think that it will definitely lead to new solutions that haven't been considered yet because of the the increased amount. You know, I think things are really coming to the forefront now. Um, and so the numbers are higher than they've ever been. So I think that some, you know, some solutions that I've read and seen about it, you know, some schools are even cutting down the workday. There's been some schools just because they've, you know, especially because they had teachers leaving because they were sick and COVID, but they were going to a four-day school year, you know, starting school later. So I definitely believe that it will balance itself out and that there will be novel solutions, new strategies um, being implemented to help uh, um, bring balance to the education system. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess I can definitely hope for that because, you know, it sucks that it's happening this way, but it seemed like there could be an opportunity. Any thoughts on, you know, what can be done to kind of retain and support good teachers? Because I imagine, you know, there are good teachers being lost as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's one piece of like research speaks to the fact that when you when um the district issues in the district is accounting for that actually allows teachers to stay particularly black and brown teachers and so research shows that one when students have teachers who look like them, especially black and brown kids, um, they learn more there's increase in gains in their academics. These teachers, when they the district issues such as policies and things that make teachers feel weighed down or decreases their autonomy, when that is corrected for it, actually keeps these teachers in the classrooms. So that's one. I think in a school level, just an more accountability, more openness um, between principals and teachers can be really effective. I think you know no one likes to feel like they're just you know taking. Um, 
taking orders and just having to check things off a list to appease the powers that be. But when principles are transparent, principles even help to be a buffer between all the initiatives that are coming from the districts and you know the CMOs and, and really tell the teachers, you know what, there's a lot coming here, the things that are most important. Here's what I want you to focus on. It builds a lot of trust. And so those are, um, that's another way. And then recently, um, some schools have been, have been providing spaces for teachers to just have spaces within the school day um, and resources to be able to just work on their mental health. And that's an optional. So never, you know, with all these things, you never want to force someone because then it takes the kind of autonomy out of it, but optional opportunities for teachers to really be able to just um, reflect and just take care of their mental health has also been impactful. You know, I, I like those solutions. And, you know, it reminds me, um, you know, in corporate, you know, I spent my career in corporate and there was a phrase that, you know, good employees don't quit companies, they quit managers. Yeah. And it's kind of parallel what you're saying about this whole principal dynamic and how the principal's role can be pretty much a figurehead and a person that can help or hurt the situation. So it seems like there's definitely some opportunity to learn from corporate there. This is my favorite topic. Now, anybody who knows me, I can't, I'm always talking about learning loss. Mm -hmm. And it's, I'm passionate about it because it's a topic that as I looked into it, it meant something else Then it was kind of repurposed doing COVID. And I love your term. Your term, you called it unfinished learning. And I love that term because maybe it was a little less political, maybe it triggered less people. <clears throat> but I love the term because it really described what happened. For example, with my son, he's doing virtual learning and he's an only child. So what he really struggled with is the social part. The part where, you know, he learns through interacting and he's in front of a laptop for like five hours and they expect him to stare at this thing for five hours. It was a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Different tool, learning management system every two weeks. It was a nightmare. Yeah. So I say that to say I love to turn unfinished learning, you know, that's created by um, the pandemic. But do you mind describing to us what that is and describing some of the issues that you've seen out there that schools are dealing with? Yeah. So, and when I use, you know, I will, that's not a term I came up with. It's a term used really in a charter community where I've seen it. Um, but unfinished learning, I think, you know, like you said, like learning loss, all of that, there's, you know, different outtakes on it. And the purpose is um, picking words that really uses asset-based, you know, ideals around what a child can do. But with unfinished, unfinished learning just literally speaks to the fact that Students were in school one day, learning from their teachers, going through a curriculum, a pacing guide. COVID happens, and schools are scrambling to patch it up as best as they can, but with the full awareness that students did not have the full experience that they would have had before the pandemic, right? So pacing guides might have gotten thrown off. The curriculum was boarded down to just provide something for students to be able to do and kind of stay busy, but it wasn't, you know, the teacher's 
school developed plans, um, the mode of execution. Of course, you know, at our best case scenarios, students had all the technology they needed, you know, teachers, you know, felt comfortable with all the technology and they were able to like do their best to produce these lessons where they're used to producing it live in front of kids. That's your best case scenario. We know for many of our students, particularly when you're talking about in our public schools, urban schools, um, there were so many barriers to even students getting in front of a computer or in front to even start to access the material. So that's what we refer to it learning loss. It's just the amount of information, standards, curriculum, um, experiences that students did not get to finish um, because of the pandemic. So that's the unfinished learning. Yeah, you know, and I'm curious because, you know, I've heard all kinds of things such as, you know, in Georgia, um, there were like thousands of students that were lost. They just quit. They gave up on school. One of my favorite stories is one day watching my son during, um, you know, learning. And there's this one kid who wasn't at home. He was kind of at some place. I don't know where he's at. Maybe the YMCA. And what he had to learn school was his parents' um, smartphone. So he's somewhere like a YMCA with his parents' smartphone trying to follow whatever the teacher and sit still. It was crazy. So I I really believe that a lot of families just gave up on school. But with unfinished learning, it kind of makes me think, is there anything being done about it? You know, have you seen educators figure it out to how they're going to, you know, or are they going to say we just lost it and there's nothing to do? Any, uh, you know, as a consultant, any suggestions or techniques that you're kind of using to help um, um, educators with? Yeah, so some of the best, you know, schools that I've seen, one, they're trying to spiral in some of that information while still having to move forward, right? So figuring out ways in their lessons where they can revisit material, even introduce some material that students didn't really understand, you know, get to be taught from the previous year while trying to um, reteach the new information. I've seen some schools, you know, do like, offer summer re, um summer school. I know Metro Nashville Public Schools here in Nashville did a whole summer school option um, after the, the 2021 school year to just kind of help students, you know, um, to help catch students up. I've also seen, um, you know, tutoring after school. So just different programs that either a fit into the school day or outside of the school day um, to help kind of close some of those gaps. Something that I, you know, work with educators on and suggest to even families is reading. That's my passion. And, um, and I really do believe that the more students reading is just a game changer. And so it's a sim- it seems very simple and sometimes it can be overlooked. There's a cool reading, but give me like the cool gadgets or the cool, you know, resources. And it's like, no, really reading, it's as simple as it gets, but it goes such a long way. Well, since you manage reading, let's get into that because I love that phrase. You, you consider reading the great equalizer. Why is that? What does that mean? Yeah, there's so much um, research out there that shows that the more a student reads, the more a person, adult, any of us, it doesn't just stop at school age, um, the 
quicker you are able to develop critical thinking skills, vocabulary. You learn so much from a book, um, even and unintentionally, right? Or just naturally that just allows you to just excel beyond measure. Some of my favorite pieces of research around the impact of reading a student shows that when you, um, you know, despite income, socioeconomic background, students who read widely and frequently perform just as high, if not higher than their more affluent peers. Why is this significant? Because one, the opportunity gap is real. We know that there are major disparities, um, you know, created by the system, the nation we live in, that starts our black and brown kids in a different playing field than their white peers. And so to know that by reading more, reading frequently, our students can actually achieve and grow at a level equal or higher to these peers is really astounding to me. So that's why I consider it a great equalizer. Of course, the more read you are, the more opportunities you have, the better your vocabulary, the better students who read widely and frequently perform better on ACTs. What does that do? It opens you up scholarships, more college opportunities. What's beneficial about that? More opportunities for better jobs, more experiences. So it's a great equalizer in that by reading and the knowledge and skills you gain through books, students are able to, students who otherwise are at, are at disadvantage, um, are able to rise to the same or higher levels than their peers who had a better starting place. You know, I, I love that term, the great equalizer. I'm just going to keep using it forever just because <laughs> until I love it is that, you know, nowadays we have a lot of books and you can ship books, right? And as long as the books are not destroyed, then kids in different countries and different places can get a book, right? Yeah. And it's so, I think it's just such an awesome opportunity. So I love that phrase. How about this? You know, the diverse selection of texts. Yeah. I think that's a, a movement or an opportunity that we've been seeing more of it, you know, and I remember once talking to someone, she, she was looking at me like my name was Malcolm X or something, just because I was like, yeah, I kind of want brown faces in the books. And she was like, why are you so militant? And I'm like, I'm militant because I want brown faces in the book. <laughs> Break it down for us, you know. Why is it important that, you know, children have diverse selections of books? Oh, my goodness. There's so much um, work around culturally responsive teaching. That's kind of what that would go under. But basically, one, it's just good for kids. I mean, I think we can all kind of reflect. I like to do this activity when I present in front of teachers. Is think about the first book that made you feel seen, right? A book that you read that made you feel seen. For me, sometimes I like to say Annie from the American Girls Collection. It was like the first book that I remember reading that had um, Addie. It was the first book that I read that had a Black girlfriend of it. And she was like a cute Black girl. And I was like, whoa, you know, she looks like me. And I was maybe third, fourth grade, you know? But books have the power to provide windows and mirrors into uh, for children. So one, when you provide a diverse selection of um, text, students are getting mirrors into their lives. One, it affirms their identity because they get to see one, authors that share their experiences and background, protagonists that share their um, experiences and backgrounds. So it's very affirming and empowering, which is really, really important that our students need. And unfortunately, when our students are not seeing, you know, characters, authors that look like them, you know, scientists, whoever, it's just kind of, you, it, it creates, it widens, you know, 
this kind of systemic racism, you know, these racist policies, because it makes students feel like, oh, only these people that look like this are the, the smart ones, the, you know, valued ones. And it's like, no, there are many awesome, awesome um, black and brown kids. And we are all, you know, awesome and amazing. We deserve to be seen and noticed. So mirrors and then windows. And so in the same sense that a book can help a student's identity be affirmed, books can also provide windows of opportunity to show them lives of other people and the possibilities. Um, and in doing so, it's actually increasing the awareness of their world around them, creating a sense of empathy. I really like when I teach to, you know, when I present to teachers or educators who teach in homogenous classrooms, whether it's like all white private you know, or, you know, it's inner city, it's black and brown, it's good for them to see books about, you know, people living experiences that are different from their own to kind of show them the possibilities. Oh, I love it. You know, I'm interested in the chat, if people can put, what is the first book that made them seen? Uh, I got a confession, the first book that made me seen was Where the Wild Things Are. I have no idea, because that book is crazy. And I didn't even know how controversial it was, right, until I got older, right? Because back when the book was um, published, it was this kid who was a little rebellious and he was a little, he had attitude, right? You know, the thing that now we see all so common, but when the book was originally published, I think it was around the mid fifties, they were like, what? What's up with you writing a book about this child acting crazy, right? But where the wild things are is like my book and I love it. And I read it to my son and he's just kind of, I tend to act out all my favorite books, right? But I, I love that way you describe it. What was the first book? that made you feel seen. And for some reason, it was that book for me. So I think that's awesome. Any recommendations um, for the people, right? Uh, and please, you know, I know you got awesome books around you, behind <laughs> you. But describe to us the books that you recommend and why for different reasons, because I can imagine different books for different reasons. Goodness, I have so many. So if we're going to do like young adult, of course, I'm always going to pitch a great Black, Latinx, you know, author of color, um, because I just, you know, I want people to read more of their books, you know, and at one, if you're teaching or if you have Black and brown kids or, you know, nieces, nephews, whoever, you know, you definitely want to make sure that they're getting an influx of those. Um, so gosh, some of my favorite. So for Jason Reynolds, it's really awesome. Um, I've got who do I have? Of course, you can't go wrong with some of your classics. So if we're doing classics, you've got Raisin in the Sun, Lorraine Hansberry. I've got their Eyes for Watching God, you know, so definitely the classics. And, and speaking of the classics, many times we, you know, you read classics, you know, you'll read your Shakespeare, you'll read, you know, your Fahrenheit 451, you know, so there's a lot of students read classics, but they're like old white men, you know, but they're also like really great classics written by Black people. Latinx people. And so that's always important to make sure that we are exposing our students to um, those. Yes, yeah, the bluest eye. Yep. Thank you, Chantel. Got that over here too. Um, Toni Morrison. Yeah. So current, so I would say some, some really fun, like YA books um, right now. So I mentioned Reynolds. Oh, Elizabeth Acevedo. She's really awesome. Clap when you land. She writes her books. Um, um, in prose, and they're really, really awesome. Um, so that's kind of, so that's my, like, YA picks. I would say for adults, if you're looking for something fun to read, um, I just finished, ooh, what did I just, oh, of course, The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. That's a really great book. 
Um, yeah, GIC has Transcendent Kingdom. That's really great. I was, we were just talking about love songs by the, oh, Kindred is a good one. Joyce just sent me that. Uh, it was a really good classic. Um, love songs by W.E. Du Bois. And of course, you know, I don't read, you know, I read a variety. So if, um, you know, where the Kodak sings, that's by a white author, but it's a really good book too. Midnight Library, so, so on and so forth. I do love, I will say my favorite genre, I will say professional development books, personal development books. I read so many of those. So I just finished um, The Shoe Dog. It's, the, it's written by the um, founder of Nike. If anybody read that, I read a lot of fantasy. Yes, fantasy is awesome. Felt seen. Thank you, Mandy, for sharing that. Um, yeah, it's a good fantasy romance. I'm, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite romance is Pride and Prejudice. And, you know, that's a classic Jane Austen, but it's like definitely one of my favorites. Um, but Shoe Dogs by Phil Knight is a really great, um, one. <laughs> um, uh, that was a really great personal development book. It's about the owner of Nike. Of course, you haven't read Michelle Obama's book. Read that. Read Obama's book. It'll be really good for you. And, um, yeah, so I could go on and on, but those are some of my, I love um, it. The I love it. No, the Dog in the Night. That's a good one. That's such a classic and kids love that book too. All, all, all of the good books, and you, you kind of take me back, right? Um, um, one of the ones I read in school, which really I still remember to this day, and I don't know why, but what was that? Where the, I can't, um, Where the Red Fern Grows? I think that oh, was a classic. Oh, oh my goodness, yeah. I have no idea. That book just just totally just pulled me in. Yeah. And what was the book with, I can't remember the name of it, the one where it's a tree and it was stuff hitting in the tree? Oh, The and Given Tree? No, it wasn't the Given Tree. It was the two kids who, it was some mystery. I can't remember the name. But, you know, it, another book that made me feel seen that really excites me now I think about it was, I kind of read this one, Coming of Age, because I was coming of age, I was figuring out life, but Invisible Man. Mm. OMG, yeah. that book? I mean, I didn't understand people. I didn't understand all these dynamics, but the Invisible Man, I think, was that Ralph Waldo? Who's that? Yes, uh, yep, exactly. Ralph, Ellison. Ellison, Ralph, Ralph Ellison, yes. That book, oh my goodness, that uh, helped me understand all kinds of people, people who look like me and not look like me, because I was that person, young, naive, so many, whatever. But anyway, we'll geek out a little later on books. I hate Let's... you give. Yes, that's a good one, Kimberly. And then the Poisonwood Bible. So I haven't read that one yet, but I've heard such great things about it. I'm like, I love books. I'm over here, like in the chat box, like, yes. <laughs> I love it. So let's... um. Let's let people know um, what you do and how they can find you, because I want to ask one last question, and then we'll kind of open it up for the audience. So based on all of these dynamics, right, um, reading being a great equalizer, so many weird things going on in school. What are your tips for how, you know, parents can, you know, work with teachers to build better, strong relationships with yeah. teachers? Because the ultimate uh, goal is the kids, right? Because mm -hmm. the kids are really impacted by this stuff. Any suggestions on what we as parents can do to build better relationships, better strong relationship with these teachers? Yes, and that reminds me. So I mentioned three things when you asked the question about um, retaining teachers. And another one, another indicator is culture, school culture. So school where, um, you know, teachers and students feel like they can work collaboratively. Teachers feel supportive and they're like, you know, shared norms within the school. But so to your point around parents and teachers, that's huge. You know, parents are the students' biggest advocates um, and teachers, you know, are just 
are passionate about the students' education and just them as a, being, a whole being. A couple of things that I know really help is communication. So to a parent, I would say it really um, it's been a, it's helpful to a teacher to just be able to communicate. And something, a tip is if, you know, many, you know, you're busy, you're, you know, something that really helps when I was in the classrooms, I really love when parents are like, hey, email is the best way to reach me. Here's my email. They tell me at the beginning of the school year and I would just put that in there and just have that as a note. You know, Miss Morris, email, that's how I'm going to reach her. Or some parents would take texts. So letting your teachers know if you do have a, perf- so if a teacher's calling you and you're not able to pick up because you're busy or it's bad timing, um, instead of just kind of like never, you know, not responding, you know, a just let the teacher know what you do prefer. Shoot them a quick text, anything like that um, really helps to, you know, helps to create like a strong bridge of communication. So that's like a tip I have for like parents is just really letting teachers know what type of communication works for you and then being responsive um, for sure. Um, I would say for a teacher, like a tip that a teacher can do to really build relationship with parents is one, start off on a good note. So when school year starts, let your first interaction with the parent be something positive that your student did. Whether you're just introducing yourself, sharing how excited you are, or sharing like something great the student did in class, anything like that, a positive message goes a long way. That way you're kind of establishing a relationship so that when you do need to have a more challenging conversation about a student behavior grade, there's already kind of that basis. So that's like one tip I'll give to a parent and one tip for a teacher. Awesome. Awesome. So where can the audience find you? We're going to open up for a a couple, two to three questions from the audience. But um, if you don't mind, tell us about where um, they can find you and what type of um, work that you do. Yeah. So I'm at the NORichardsonConsultant.com and I'm also on Instagram at NORichardsonConsulting. I do a lot of videos and share resources, reading related. Um, what I do is I work with schools, I work with educational organizations and companies. If you're like trying to start a summer program, you can reach out to me. But my focus is to use coaching and reading to really support schools, educators to close the opportunity gap. Awesome. Thank you. And Tamika is always crafty. She's yeah, put your contact you, information. Yeah in the chat. So let's do a few questions from the audience. Feel free to type your question in the chat. What questions do we have for Anna? Risa, did you wanna unmute and ask your question? Sure, I would love to hear about Um, If you have any insights into this massive donation Michael Bloomberg just gave to the New York City Charter Schools this week, and I just was really blown away that it was given to the charter schools and like not to the public school system and what that means for the rest of us across the country. Like, is this, uh, you know, a sign that there's going to be more money put into charter schools? You know, I've brought my son up through public high school, you know, on purpose. Um, so anyway, I'd love any insights you have on that, you know, if not totally understand, cause it was just announced this week and I'm still trying to get my head around it. Thanks. Yeah, I definitely, um, I'm not familiar with that, but definitely I'm going to read into that because I'm very curious. I will share a little bit of what I do know about New York and charter schools, because I do work with some, um, 
schools in the New York North area. I do know that they have a way bigger and like charter schools were here in this. And I'm not sure Risa, if you're in the South or not, but in the South charters are like more of a minority group of schools up North New York, um, Massachusetts, those areas, they have like almost some places like a one-to-one ratio of charter to public schools. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it. In addition, um, so charters are also public schools, right? So they are all considered public, but um, to your point around the way funds are work, charters can receive private donations or like funding. Um, And so I don't know if Bloomberg, I, I have no idea if like he tried to give it to the state and that couldn't work because of like the way this public schools were set up. But yeah, I so yeah, so those are just some of my kind of thoughts around what could have happened there. Awesome. We have a couple more questions. Um, Kimberly says she just quit today. So definitely interested yeah. in what she's saying. And then um, Samara, is it Samara Samara? Um, she has her hand up. What question do you have? Hi, it's Samara. You said it right the first time. And I greatly appreciate that because people always mispronounce my name. Um, I wanted to say, or my question would be, I'm I'm an educator and I have the biggest struggle with trying to um, get my students to read books. Uh, I think social media has taken up so much that They're really not interested in reading as much. They want to know things, but they don't want to take the time to read them. Um, And you have so much technology that, to me, I think it affects with some of their, I guess, ownership of reading because you don't even have to know how to spell. You can press the microphone or ask Siri, (laughs) a lot of things. So I'm trying to find out what would be some um, ideas and ways to have your students that don't normally read um, become more engaged and even with the parents because we even have programs called Books for Keeps and the students get 12 free books every grade level every year at the end of the year, 12 free um, brand new books that they get to go and pick out themselves and that they can read over the summer to keep them reading. I just came from a workshop this evening. Um, That's where I'm driving home from now. Um, to engage parents in regards to how they can help their child, you know, read more or and then was the program that to get the free books and the participation for that was low. So I'm just trying to find ways to get the children to truly understand how much their mind can grow, how much more knowledgeable they are when it comes to books. And it's just like pulling teeth, not just to get them to read, but even comprehend what they're reading. Um, I have my students, they read even the current story in the textbook and they read it, but then they can't answer any questions because they just kind of read it, but they didn't really engage in the story. So do you have any suggestions for me as a teacher to give to the parents (laughs) or even in the class to help the students to enjoy the love of reading? Because I tell them, I wish I had time to read, <laughs> but I don't, I have to um, personal reading. I got a lot of required reading and I would love to just sit back and have a chance to read. You assign them to read for homework and they don't even take 30 minutes. And this is Awesome. So Samara, she was um, breaking up a little bit, but I think we got the gist of her questions and you're breaking up a little bit, Samara, but I think we can, um, 
um, respond to your question. Go ahead, you know. Yes, I, um, oh, I'm just reading this message in the chat box too. So that's a great question. I love that question because that's my jam. I love um, supporting schools and educators and um, get students to read more. But yes, I definitely, your pain points definitely resonate. There's more competition out there with technology and all of that. Um, but books are just as exciting and more powerful than they've ever been. I tell kids all the time, like, I promise you, once you get hooked on like a good book, it'll be better than your favorite Netflix, Netflix series, you know? So, so I, I would say a couple of like quick strategies you can try is one to incentivizing students to read. That's just like an extrinsic incentive, right? So that they can at least start access. And many students just need to, they'll say, I don't like reading. It's boring because they haven't found something that they really enjoy. So one really, um, recommending books based on their interest to them. So sometimes you can do like an interest survey, find out what's your favorite movie, what's your favorite video game, TV show, and use that to kind of recommend books. And if you don't know, you know, I like Minecraft and what books work for that, you can also kind of like Google and things like that. You can use other students to recommend, but kind of using their interest to recommend books, students are more likely to read if, you know, this is like a special um, book that came from their teacher, you know, that opens them up because we, what we want to do is just get them to fall in love with their first book. Then it's just like kind of magic from there. Um, so, it, so that's one where recommendations through interest surveys, find out their interest of pairing them up with a book and then incentivizing. So once students are, for some students, you know, they may not read because they have to, but they'll read, I mean, they'll read it if it's like, read 10 books and you get X prize. And of course, that's not the long-term solution, but that at least allows them to start looking and trying out books. And so incentivizing with some kind of rewards, and it can be free things like you get to be the line leader or a homework pass or a shoe pass or a hat pass, whatever. Or, you know, you can give them a bag of chips or, you know, kids love all those types of things. But sometimes incentives for finishing books allows them to at least start like trying a book. And then before they know it, they start to build some of those intrinsic motivators because, they find themselves enjoying a book, even though initially they did it for the reward. So those are two examples. I have many more on my Instagram. I actually have a, a video series. If you scroll down called 10 Reading Catalysts, and it's like 10 strategies and it comes with like tips and tools on ways that you can motivate students to read. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Eno, for that. You know, and I love what you said as I wrap up and we transition is that it reminds me of a part of the excitement in getting my son to read. Um, I remember him getting excited about winning the awards of, you know, how many people read the most books. But two things really stick out to me when he began to read what I consider his first large books. Similar to what you said, I figured out, that, of course, he loved Mario Brothers. He loved games, but then he loved the classic characters, you know, Mario and Sonic. So I got him this huge 30-year anniversary encyclopedia picture glossy of Mario I didn't realize Mario has like a thousand characters. He now knows all of the characters. So then we did something recently where we were watching a movie turning red. And while we were at the bookstore, he and I, I saw that they had a book with no pictures in it of turning red. He is now actively reading that book with excitement because Turning Red is one of his favorite books, second to Encanto, right? So, you know, those are a few things that I've used that are very consistent with what you said. And you're right, it works. Because I was able, as a parent, to understand that survey of what excites him. 
interconnected dots with books that were had inciting information in it. So, Eno, thank you for being here tonight. Looking forward to chatting with you soon. Watch your email tonight. You get a um, surprise for being a speaker here tonight. Look forward to um, working with you soon. And we're going to transition to our next speaker. Tonight, we actually have a double feature. So if you are a nerd, an academic, highly educated, you know, highfalutin, then we have a solution for you. Also known as nerdy by nature. I love that. I'm only claiming it just because I love that term. Because I was that kid who was on the bus, going home, reading a bunch of books, right? But then, you know, it's so fun when I was here, you know, just chopping it up with Dr. Chantel Nicholas about what she does. So, you know, I want to kind of um, read a little bit about her. Well, in fact, let me find, uh, I'm going to find your bio because it's not in front of me. So here it is right here. Dr. Nicholas is a published PhD chemist with an extensive background in multidisciplinary research. She understands the unique challenges that STEM professionals face. And she uses her insights and business acumen, I love that part, her insights and business acumen to guide her clients on their journey to become entrepreneurs. Check this out, this, this is a really beautiful bio right here. From idea development to implementation of a business model to marketing approach, Dr. Nicholas drives mission critical information to ensure a successful business launch. All that to say, as I was talking to her, she said, no, 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 I don't just coach people in business. I help them get started from day one. Y'all, you know, welcome Dr. Nicholas. Dr. Chantel Nicholas, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being so patient. Thank you. And thank you for loving the nerdy by nature thing. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me of that. I really love it too. <laughs> so many of us are. Thanks for having me. Exciting to be here. Awesome. I love your background. And I tell you why I love your bio. Because as I read it, I see a bunch of things that are like oil and water. You know, me being an engineer myself, and I'm really, really good with the bits and bytes, you know, zeros and ones. But I remember being in the computer lab designing computers, and, you know, I'd be talking too much. And people staring at me like, why are you talking so much, right? But a lot of people don't realize that these personalities things. But before we get started, you know, let's dig into you. What's your origin story? Tell us about you, how you came to be, like where you went to school, what you do, what you're passionate about. Tell us about you. All right. All right. So let me know if I missed anything. Um, so I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And um, like, you know, I'm a, a child of immigrants. Of, of Me, I'm a child of Haitian immigrants in particular. Um, and I went to college in New York, went to Barnard College, Women's College. Um, in New York City, um, majored in chemistry, which I loved in high school, by the way. Um, I know a lot of people are like, what? High school is where I decided that chemistry was not for me. But I got lucky. Um, and, you know, from there, because I had a great teacher. Um, from there, I went on, uh, got my PhD in chemistry from Clark Atlanta University in Georgia. And then I went and did a postdoc in North Carolina at EPA. And so um, I went from being a bench chemist, you know, you know, from, from doing research in undergrad to a cosmetic chemist to a computational chemist. And, you know, my career focus has been for a long time um, using uh, my data science skills. I'm also a coder, using my data science skills to see if we can 
guess at whether or not certain products could, you know, cause problems in humans in the environment. <laughs> so that's like my work hat. That's been my work hat for a long time. <laughs> you know, thank you for sharing it. And I also love that you're also a new mom, right? He's right here laying down. <laughs> yes. I mean, one thing I love that fascinates me about new moms, because, you know, a, a uh, certain new moms, they have that baby and they be right back to work. I love it, right? You know, as you uh, rock the baby, as you interview tonight, it is so awesome and so beautiful. Tell me this, you. you know, when it comes to PhDs, right? You're a PhD, you know PhDs. Why do you feel that certain PhDs have, you know, great potential to become entrepreneurs? You know, it's interesting, Calvin. I read those articles that you were researching that where people wrote about why they thought PhDs would be great entrepreneurs. There were some good ones on there, like they're great at researching and, you know, and all that. And I think a couple of things that we don't realize is besides the research, we are good salespeople because PhDs and if you even if you have a master's degree and you've written a dissertation, and some of you bachelors are 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 nurse in the beginning. You've probably written some kind of a some kind of a thing like that for your BS as well. But you know, you've had to sell yourself, right? You know, and prove to a cater of elite professionals that you belong, that you have um, you know, a contribution. Um, so I think from the beginning, you've learned how to sell yourself and on top of that, you're able to manage tons of information. People from the past who've published ahead of you, your current colleagues and what they're working on, the people you're mentoring, and then on top of that to say, how do I carve out a space for myself that's not copying what another scientist has done? Assuming that there is nothing new under the sun, how do I make a name for myself? And when you think of that and the fact that you have to create content, in a matter of like publishing in journals and writing books and whatnot. I mean, you have the, the, the trifecta. You have a salesperson, someone who actually creates content, who could do email marketing, podcasting, filming or whatever. And then on top of that, they have a niche market, right? <laughs> who's willing to listen to them and, you know, who's buying it, right? So I, I just think that we just, we have, we've developed those skills in, in addition to project management and all those other awesome skill sets that we we develop as nerds in the academics. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so funny because I agree with you. And it's like, I never realized it until I started researching for this show and this topic is that those things are very true, right? Because I typically saw, you know, the PhDs, the nerdy type, they're just kind of over, you know, you know, they're the back to the future, awkward types. But I never really saw those skills, right? Until I was like, yep, because I often tell people that, that we're, I wear three hats. I wear producer. Um, mm -hmm. As I'm going through the shows, I'm figuring out the shows and what it's going to be. I wear marketer, where I'm taking a message and I'm trying to figure out how do I package it, right? And mm -hmm. then... I do CEO, where I'm like, and hey, how do you run a well oil machine? And it's these different hats that you wear that a lot of times it's one person doing one of those things, but you have to be able to switch and be like, hey, I need to make an executive decision. Well, wait a minute, I need to do a creative. And those are definitely left and right sides of the brain that a lot of people aren't accustomed to. But that's the good part. How about the challenges? What are some, as you see, um, I like the word nerdy types because that's a part of your business, right? Um, what's your website again? Yeah. Uh, nerdstartupincubator.com. 
Nerd Startup Incubator. So it's a term of endearment, right? So it's affectionately we call this oh, the nerdy yeah. types. But what are some yeah. what are some challenges do you see um, with you know yeah. these you know highly degreed you know professionals when it comes to starting their own businesses? What are some challenges you see? Well, first thing is we have to change and shift the way the word nerd is looked at. I feel like nerds are dynamic professionals. We have different types of things that we quote unquote nerd out about that we know a lot about. And we love to distill that information to whomever is interested in. And I just love how people are saying that they've been traumatized by chemistry (laughs) Uh, since high school. That's where it happens, isn't it? Um, But, you know, the challenges are one thinking that the that the, your degree has to define what you do as an entrepreneur 100 percent um and that the nine to five model needs to be what you pursue when you become an entrepreneur meaning that you're still going to be charging for your hours and you know as a scientist as a chemist i can tell you we can all say that that experiment doesn't work for a lot of us right a lot of us who have lots of different skills and have busy lives, nine to five lives, you know, full-time everything, um, that doesn't work for us. So it's really a mindset shift to say, wow, I, I don't just have to get paid for what people think that I only know, right? Um, you know, some people have these natural gifts and let's nerd out and say superpowers that, you know, they don't have a degree in, but they would love to sort of infiltrate that as an entrepreneur. So I wish more nerds knew more highly degree nerds knew that they didn't have to necessarily do exactly what they're doing for their nine to five, unless they were incredibly passionate about that in a business. That's a big challenge. And another challenge is, um, I would say is, dare I say is being willing to get out of your head and um, not just be behind the scenes as the person who's like, just imagining someone in the lab or in a library working with their head down and a lot of us do have personality and a lot of us are like well my significant partner other knows that I'm 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 crazy I'm fun and my family knows this side of me but dare I venture out and let people know that I'm not just a person introvert or just someone that is like super conservative dare I pop out with color Dare, dare I laugh out loud in public so I think the challenge is being able to be their authentic selves. And I know that that's t- that might be a little deeper than maybe we want to go. But I think that if we tackled the nine to five mindset and um, the, the ability to live loudly or to live as yourself um, in, you know, in public or for people who for, it ma- for whom it matters, I think it could uh, have a lot of uh, folks like us shifting our minds from you know, nine to five mindset to CEO mindset. Wow. You know, I love that answer, you know, and even though it's deep, it's, it's, it's beautiful, right? Because what you described is the essence, right? And I like what you describe it. It's just like this shift, this mind shift where, you know, PhDs are in my mind, it's like they get, they, they're kind of really hone in on this laser focused topic and they become good at this thing. Right. But it's like, as you said, you know, what it means to be an entrepreneur or a business owner may not be that thing that you spent so much time focusing on and becoming good at. 
So it's almost like an opening process. And I can see as you working with your clients, how you helping them open up, right? In fact, that's how I heard about you. One of your clients was like, hey, you know, she's kind of awesome, right? You know, so I'm <laughs> thankful that, you know, she connected me with you. But tell me, what, is, what do some of your clients say about your work? You know, clients that you have helped, what have they said about you? You know, these people that you've kind of helped along that process. I have one client that I like to use as a case study, but I have several. And the reason why I like her in particular is because, you know, she had a really great course. Her course was, uh, she basically is an instructional design uh, coach. So she helps people who distill information like teachers make that more accessible to people who otherwise may not know that that course is for them. So let's say someone who's a non-minority instructor makes sure that that course or the information is more accessible to someone that looks like me, for example, right? So making them better teachers, like that, which is really good for the world, right? So she had developed a course and she was looking to uh, fill out all of her seats and like, wh- how do you get more people into your seats? You don't have a mailing list, right? So we worked together and I, I coined, and I'm not going to say what it was, but I coined what we would call her peeps, right? Um, the people that she's interested in. And so she developed a social media post around that and hundreds of people responded to her. Not only did she fill the seats of her course, but she had tons of leads for people to work with her in the future. And then through that process, she was able to refine her product, right? Her product wasn't perfect from the beginning, but now she's at a place where she's charging, what would I say, five, six, seven times what she charged before, right? So all of that was because she was willing to venture out and at least see what she had in the to give to the world. Um, so I really love working with her. And one of the things that she likes to say is, you want to work with you, me if you are um, ready, you know, to stop being limited by your genius, right? And ready to start sort of expanding beyond the confines of, you know, academic and corporate structure, right? To really start to Think of entrepreneurship as a way to not just make money or to have another job, but to really be yourself while you're making impact. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that is a great case study customer. I mean, I can see you actually physically writing a case study on this customer because it's obviously she gets it, right? She, she gets, she gets it, it, you know, that she was in her own way. And I can see how your coaching kind of helped her get out of her way. And I love that, of that experience of how she was able to tweak her messaging so much so that in being herself, because in being herself, she knew what her people look like, right? She knew what her peeps were like. She just had to, as they say, name it and claim it. So I love that. Name it and claim it. Name it and claim it. Let them know you exist. Yes. Yes. She named it and claimed it with your guy. And it's and I, I love that because that's beautiful because I know what it's like to be in that moment. and You just kind of stuck. Right. And I call somebody like, hey, I need some ideas. Right. And you really just need some help getting unstuck. So kudos to you for that. Um, Thank you. One last question. Well, a couple more questions before we kind of open up to the audience. Um, what um, are your thoughts about entrepreneurship? Like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, curious about how you got started. Are you like 
really big into just diving head first and going in full entrepreneur or just kind of trying it out a little bit? What's your take? Any suggestion, recommendation, your personal story? Well, I can tell you for me, I've always I had a thing where I was afraid to actually venture out. It was always like a dream fantasy. You know, dare I dare I out myself and say that I I always wanted to have in my own business because I always knew the nine to five model meant possibly 40 plus years <laughs> working the nine to five. And I was like, I don't really want to do that. So so it became a matter of if I could run the greatest experiment of my life where I can make money on my own terms, make the greatest impact and and live my best life and it worked, what would that be? And how do I work myself towards that? Once I figured out what my business idea was, believe it or not, I sat on it because I thought it was crazy. And so I'm here to say that if you have incredible ideas, don't sit on them. Talk to someone, talk to me if you like, so that we can think about your path to getting there. It's okay to have big ideas, but how do you figure out where to start? That's what I help you do, especially to have an evidence-based approach. That was another thing. How do I know that people will like it? Well, how do you use an evidence-based approach as, as, as a scientist, as a nerd, to know if what you have exists? I help you do that. But honestly, for a long time, I was scared. I was scared to because I said, this will meet, if I do this, it means that I have to come out of you know, my comfort zone. You know, I think of some of the books that like Shonda Rhimes' Year of Yes, right? She had to break out of her comfort zone and she's a dope writer, but still, she still had to break out of her comfort zone now, you know, in order to relive her life fully. So my biggest challenge was sitting on it and not seizing the opportunity to grow that, that significant amount of growth then. Now, when you talk about jumping in, there are ways to, to get into entrepreneurship and I don't recommend 100% like, like quit your job. <laughs> Someone said that they quit today. I'm not sure if they meant that they quit their job, but kudos to you if you did. But if you can think of your job as something that requires seed, your business is something that requires seed funding, <laughs> then maybe you want to keep your job. Maybe the idea is to create a business that fits around your busy lifestyle so that if it can take over, it's as far as replace your income. Well, guess what? You know for a fact that you can work it 15 hours a week and make enough money. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> you may not have to work 40 hours to like get what you were making before. So I like the idea of you transitioning to, into it, experimenting with what works. We all know that we have to experiment because there's always, there's never like one strategy that fits everyone, right? So giving yourself the time to develop what it is that you're doing, um, develop your product, your perfect, your ideal product, who your ideal client is, all that takes time. So give yourself some time to get into the water and learn how to optimize the time that you have. That's what I would say. Awesome. You know, I, I really enjoy that because, you know, I, I've tried it both ways. And I would say one way, jumping all in is extremely stressful. And the reason why it's stressful is because you're like, how am I going to pay the bills, right? And that's real, right? Mortgage, it don't matter how much money you make. It want to be paid every single month, right? And entrepreneurship yes. can be like, you make money sometimes, sometimes you don't, right? And when you got corporate, it's like you get paid no matter what you do or whatever. So I like your response. I also like, and I can tell, Eno also love your evidence-based approach. Because as you were talking, I was kind of feeling your story out. You use your core skills, 
to launch your own business. You're like, oh, because I love data and then I can test these theories and I can do this thing. And then I use evidence based approach. You see, so if you're if you're picking up what she's putting down, people, she's giving you the secrets of how she do this. She don't just say, hey, do it. She goes off. She does some research. And then she's going to, you know, she's going to measure them. And then she's like, mm, no, don't do that. Yeah, do this. You see, and I love it, right? Because if you pick it up what she's putting down, she's using her God-given talents, her gifts, to push and support her entrepreneurship. And she's preparing that with you guys. So I love that. What we're going to do is open up for a few questions because I think someone in the audience may have a question for Dr. Chantel. Who do we got? What questions do you have? Any, um, how about that lady who quit today? She, 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 um, working on being an entrepreneur. Who is that? That was Kimberly. Did we lose Kimberly? Yeah. Kimberly's not on anymore. Uh, I was getting ready to get all up in her biz. Okay. Yes. Yes. I think <laughs> Someone said, what generation is picking up what she's putting down? I know, right? What generation is that? <laughs> oh, pick it up. Uh, what she's putting down. That's a disco generation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like to be E all the above. Let's see, mm -hmm. what, what questions? And as you guys think of questions, I want to add something else. Um, yeah, please share. You know, I think it's fantastic when we have great ideas and we want to go on Shark Tank. You know, eventually I want Nurse Start Thank You Better to be that, right? So I meet so many amazing professionals who are like, look, I have this incredible idea that I want to get funded and I wish I could fund it for them, right? I'm like, first of all, you're a dope professional. You know what you're talking about. Um, who's going to believe you other than another nerd like you that you know what you're talking about, which is fantastic. Um, but what I like to encourage people to do is, hey, what if you didn't have to delay entrepreneurship because you're waiting for someone else to fund your idea? What if you, you know, some, a lot of us don't realize we have ideas already, that we can solve problems already. And that if we just thought about it, there is something that we can create for others that can be a huge help that we can get behind, get passionate about right now. So what if you were part of, what if you in part funded your big idea because you know you were able to create something that other people wanted and what if you were able to create something digital right which is I mean think about it you can produce a million kajillion right digital things but how many hours in a day do you have right I feel that so many of us have so many amazing great ideas that if we just gave us the opportunity to think then we would be able to create and if we were to create, we would change the world. And I think that's what is missing. More of us need to be thinking about how we can create something that changes the world. Well, you know, I, I love that because where you've equated is entrepreneurship to ideas. Great ideas leads to entrepreneurship. And I happen to know a lot of people who have great ideas. And like you said, they sit on those ideas. And I tell you another thing I noticed that hold people back. And I was going to mention this today when I was speaking. But I believe a lot of small business entrepreneurs get held back because they're so focused on making money on day one. They trying to get paid on day one. And I know people who have published a thousand books and they still trying to make profit. But it's the ideas. And as they said last week is you have to be patient. I could give you evidence of this. Let's evidence approach. How many people in the room use Google? Everybody. How many people have ever given Google any money? No, very few. So how is it that Google makes all this money and nobody gives them money? 
is because they started with an idea. And they said, hey, when people search for this one thing, they often search for this thing with it. So these two things, that's a pattern. So they had an idea. And they learned how to make money, but they started by solving problems, just as you describe it. And I love that. Did you see, did we get any questions in the audience? Angela, says, she's just chatting. But yeah, she's like, Google. <laughs> she don't like Google. You know, she, uh, she's going off on Google right now. Yeah, she's probably building the bunker you, right now. Keep going. I love what you were saying then. It's like um, about, you know, making money. Um, first of all, if, entrep- if it were that easy to make a lot of money as an entrepreneur, more people would be entrepreneurs. Everybody be doing it. Let's just put it out there. Um, but when you talk about being a nine to five professional, some of you are full-time parents or full-time caregivers or, um, you know, full-time, you are the person at your church that they rely on to do audiovisual, right? <laughs> After work or whatever, whatever it is that you do, you don't have a lot of time in, the, in your day. So why, why spend your time doing something that's not going to be meaningful to you? You want to be able to pursue an idea that's worth fighting for, that's even worth failing for, because we hear the stats about businesses failing. Are you willing to experiment with something that you know might fail? And if you're going to spend your countless hours, you know, very few hours working on it, it might as well be worth it. Um, There's a book that I I like, um, you know, by uh, MJ DeMarco. It's called The Millionaire Fast Lane. And it's not what you think. But it's like, you know, if you can find a way to help a million people, even if you didn't get paid to help those million people, sort of what you're saying, Calvin, you, you, you can't lose. You're going to make money because you were able to impact a million people's lives. So think about it, whether it was directly or indirectly, if you could impact pe- million people's lives through what you're doing, if you could find a way that that can happen with the number crunching, then you're like, man, I might be onto something. So think about your impact. Think about the fact, think about um, how much time you, we, we have on this earth and how everything is not, you know, 100%, um, you know, given, right? What, what would you do with your time? What's worth it to you to work on if it could work for you and work for other people at the same time? So I just really like for people to um, clarify, create, and commit to launching. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to launch. The commitment comes from the heart. It comes from the impact. It comes from you serving. Once you start thinking about other people and how you can serve, it gets really exciting. I mean, it causes you to do all kinds of things that come out of your comfort zone, right? And and live loudly as someone said, they love that, right? And to really live in your purpose in business. I think entrepreneurship is one of the best ways to do it because you get to do it on your terms. You get to help people that you want to help and you get to build, literally create the life that you want. And um, how better to do that than in, through entrepreneurship? I mean, I know... We have these great jobs. We've worked really hard for them. But let's follow the what if. What if you went after it and it really worked? Wouldn't it be worth the time, energy, and money you put into it? Awesome. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, tell us, do you do, you do um, like consultations, like, you know, when you're just talking to people? You know, tell us about that. You know, we gave them your website. They know how they can um, contact you. Um, what does that engagement look like? Well, yeah, so if you do head over to nerdstartupincubator.com, you'll get a chance to download my free guide, which is um, Nerd's Guide to Starting a Side Business, Seven Things 
you need to do in order to start. So even if you don't know where to start, seven steps to take, right? Um, and so you can pretty much do that on your own. But I also have courses that help you if you are like, hey, I don't have time to, to work with anyone one-on-one, but I kind of want to do this guided, you know, like without being really guided. I have courses that you can take that can help you figure out what your idea is and then work on it through, through the point where you have a whole strategy for transforming your ideal clients and then getting that evidence you need that your product works for people, that they want it and they will pay for it specifically from you, right? Um, but I also have, you know, complimentary calls with folks who feel that, man, that idea is at the tip of my tongue or I'm in business right now and I'm having a challenge with lead generation or I'm having a challenge with creating a product or a system that I can use um, that really fits into my lifestyle right now. I help you figure all that stuff out. And um, so I like to give complimentary calls, especially to kind of reward people for thinking, right? And trying to put great things out there. So that sounds like you then definitely get on my mailing list and reply to the email. Like you'll get an email with the download and just reply to the email. Let me know how, you know, you found me that, you know, Southern Soul uh, sent you. And I'll get you on my calendar so we can so we can talk because I'm just assuming that because you're listening right now that you probably are like, man, I really do want to get an idea off the ground. So you sound like someone that I love to meet. I just love to meet and shake your hand virtually. But yes, I do have one on one coaching that I offer to people who are really excited to get started, really are doing this because they have a purpose. Right. They have purpose. And they see that they can make an impact and they see the growth. People who think, wow, if this goes really well, I can build a whole empire. I like to help people who want to develop their visions um, that can make something, try to create something bigger than themselves and bigger than they they ever even thought it could be. Um, So those are the people that I'm passionate about working with, you know, game changers. So that sounds like you. You can reach me at hello at nursestartupincubator.com as well. Or you can go ahead and and get the downloadable and and reply to that email. And I'll be so excited to talk to you. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Chantel Nicholas, for being here tonight. We've had an awesome night. We started talking about hot topics in education. And Eno really, really shared with us what she does and how she sees some of the current challenges in our education system today. She helped me go from a parent that says, hey, this sucks, to being a little bit more empathetic or aware about, you know, what's really going on. You know, I'm excited that we were able to geek out a little bit, you know, kind of talk about books. She shared with me something that I, you know, can appreciate. That first book that allowed me to feel like I was seen. And as I've been thinking, as other books have been popping out, and I definitely do agree with her about how getting children started early and reading books, it creates all of these gateways in, into life and windows into life and understanding of life. And I see that happening with my son. So kudos to her. And of course, Dr. Chantel Nicholas, nerdy by nature. Oh my goodness, purpose-driven change makers, people who have ideas. People who are trying to solve problems. People who understand that, hey, entrepreneurship ain't just a fancy word. It can be an avenue that I can build a lifestyle business 
or solve problems that I'm passionate about by helping a million people, which is how we got started here at Southern Soul. If you enjoyed yourself tonight, I want to let you know how you can support the team. Buy us a cup of coffee. Why? Why would you buy us a cup of coffee? Well, we actually are giving out all kinds of fringe benefits. For people who've already bought us a cup of coffee, five, you get a special invitation to our free grant writing seminar that we're having in May. So what we do is we take care of our people. We take care of our donors, our people who find value in what we do. So as Tamika drops in the chat, how you can support the work we do, and we call it exploratory journalism. That's taking information that traditional news sources may not cover, but we make it more accessible to you in a way that, uh, you know, just broke it down. The way Dr. Nicholas broke it down for us. We take care of our speakers tonight, so make sure y'all check your inbox. So y'all know what I love to do is end the show by listening to some of my daddy's favorite records. So if you want to chill, listen to a few records with me, then do that. If not, I'll see you guys next week. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.